So Mark, we have had such a full and wonderfully beneficial weekend with you. We're thankful that you've come to be with us here. And uh, those of you who haven't been with us for the weekend, one of the things Mark has encouraged us to see the, the church in the Myrtle Beach area, the whole church, not just us, but the whole church, is that we're a lighthouse, not shining out to sea, but shining inland, shining in where the people are shining the light of Jesus. And it's my belief that every one of us is going to find our light shining brighter again this morning because you're going to share with us. So come on up and share. And uh, let's give you a music stand that I don't think will collapse. We've had the weekend of collapsing music stands, but I think we've got the right one now. So take your time. Thank you for being here. We love you. Well, good morning. How's everybody? Everybody alive and well? If you're dead, raise a hand. We'll pray for you first during the ministry time. No takers, huh? All righty. Well, uh, this is the first time some of you have probably ever heard me speak. Uh, I have a uh, theory about the first time you speak to a church that it's kind of like a, a first date. You don't even want to hold hands, you know, you just want to... <laughs> have pizza and ice cream, whatever, you know, but uh, I'm going to ignore that and I'm going to jump into the deep end of the pool with you guys. And I, I want to, uh, I'll give you just a bit, little bit of a backdrop about me so that you can um, feel more nervous about me. Yeah. I've uh, been married to the same wife for 39 years now. I have three kids and uh, one dog and uh, a very fast motorcycle that I love. Uh, <laughs> I've been involved in, oh good, I see one excited person there. <laughs> uh, I've been involved in uh, literally uh, for almost 40 years now. I, I know I only look like I'm 35, but uh, for 40 years with international ministry, I've ministered uh, except for last year, obviously with COVID. But traditionally, I travel about um, uh, 120 to 140 days a year all over the globe, extensively in Europe, United States, Canada, but as well Africa and uh, Asia quite a bit. And uh, although I'm, I've been highly involved with Catch the Fire, in fact, uh, way beyond Catch the Fire even began, you know, with uh, the people that formed the network. But... Uh, my, I minister in a wide variety of churches, like in England, I go to Anglican and Pentecostal churches. In Europe, I'll go to Baptist and state Lutheran churches, and um, just a wide variety. Um, and my primary focus is on things like worship and prayer, intimacy with the Lord, really knowing the heartbeat of God, knowing His voice in our lives, and living out of His uh, presence and power. But I want to speak to you something about uh, family life uh, that I feel is uh, very, very important for the church in the Western world, particularly America, to grasp at this point in time. Because we live in a, a season right now in Western world history that I think is marked by a significant um, loss of commitment and loyalty and integrity in those things. And particularly in the United States, uh, I minister has said a lot in Europe, the UK, Scandinavia, but I, I love the American, uh, American culture, a lot of things about it, and obviously we have our, our faults as well, but I love the American church because it's a very generous church. We support 
missions and just incredible things around the world for the kingdom of God and otherwise. <clears throat> but one of our unique problems is in America, as part of our American culture, we think very individualistically. And of course, we're all individuals. We all have a unique call upon us. God does unique things with all of us. But we're called to be a family. We're called to be the body of Christ. And it's interesting when you minister in places a lot like Taiwan or South Korea or, you know, uh, many parts of the world, you see just a whole nother understanding of what it is to be the body of Christ. And I want to speak into this a little bit, if that's okay. Say, yeah, that's okay. And I want to, one thing I want to encourage you that I, I do, I, I've, I've, I've known, I've written books on the power of the Holy Spirit, healing and miracles, and I love it. Like we've had some really good ministry times this weekend, Friday night and yesterday, when the Lord just comes and uh, discombobulates people. That's a theological word. <laughs> like Isaiah said, I've come undone when he came before the presence of the Lord. And I, I love those, you know, those big bang moments when the Holy Spirit comes in great power because that's time often when miracles happen, healings happen, amazing revelation of the person of God, the purposes of God can be life-changing. But the reality is that despite the fact that those moments come, Christianity-like life is called to be a process. It's called to be a journey. And a lot of times we're, we're looking for, oh, just that one touch, that one word. But it's the journey that we're called to do as a family in committed relationship that really takes, the, uh, takes us over the distances and gets us to where God wants to be. There's a story. I, I used to live in Ohio, and I used to do a lot of motorcycling through the hills of, uh, of uh, uh, Kentucky and Tennessee and North Carolina. And uh, there's this uh, group of people that we refer to as hillbillies. And uh, there was this one older couple. They were in their late 70s. They lived in this real remote shack up in the hills, very isolated. They'd had about 15 kids, you know, and they'd all kind of moved on. And, and now they only had one uh, son left at home. And he was about to turn 21 years old, and he's about to leave and go into the big wide world. So they decided for his 21st birthday, they would load up the old beat up pickup truck, spend a couple hours riding down these winding mountain roads and go to the big city and buy him a big meal. The big city was only 5,000 people, but for them it was like New York or Paris. So they, they get down there, you know, and they ask around, where's the best restaurant? And people say, oh, you got to go to this new five-story hotel. They've got this great restaurant. That five-story hotel is like a skyscraper to them, you know. So they pull up there, and the, uh, the father says to his wife, he says, woman, you wait here. We're going to go see if this restaurant's good enough for our boy, and if it is, we'll come get you. So he and his son, they walk into the foyer of this nice new hotel, this lobby, and they begin checking something out that they've never seen before. They can't understand it. There's these two shiny metal doors with a button next to a wall, and they see people walk up, press the button. These doors open up, and they see inside there's a little tiny room. There's no other doors. There's no other windows. There's no furniture, and people get into this little room. The doors close. A minute later, the doors open up. Nobody's there. And they, they can't figure out what's going on. And then it gets even weirder because people get into this little room by themselves. 
A minute later, the doors open up. Different people come walking out. And they're just, you know, they're just spellbound by this. And after a few minutes, this one very older lady, about 110, just hobbling along on a walker, you know, has one foot in the grave. She slowly walks over. She presses that little button. And the room's empty. She gets in. The doors close. A minute later, the door opens up. And this beautiful 20-year-old girl, very attractive dress, comes walking out. The father looks at his son and says, quick, boy, go get your mother. And I, <laughs> I think <laughs> sometimes we, I know what some of you are thinking about your spouse. Where is that little door? But uh, uh, the reality is sometimes that as, although it always exciting when God comes with healing power and uh, great touches of God, it's the journey we're called to that God really brings about the changes of going the distance of becoming Christ-like. And that journey is called to be a journey together. I want to speak a little bit into the New Testament and even the Old Testament covenant. And the word covenant, it's one of those Bible words, it's kind of like, oh, some other theological words. We use them all the time, you know, like the blood of the lamb and things like that. But what does it really mean? Uh, I've, uh, besides ministering extensively around the globe, my wife and I lived in Canada for six years, and I've done, I spent a lot of time in Australia ministering there. Throughout the last year, it's been really startling, if you follow international news, the severe lockdowns they've had both in Canada and Australia. Uh, in Canada, you know, uh, police have gone into churches on Sunday mornings and arrested police and all sorts of things because they dared to meet. didn't just cite them, but it's been pretty drastic. Uh, I've done a lot of ministry, particularly in Melbourne, Australia, and for over a year now, with some of the severe lockdowns that have been the most intense there, that if you were walking down the street, the police under these emergency um, uh, uh, laws had the right to pull you over and challenge you, where were you going? And if you were too far from your house, you weren't allowed to go even to a grocery store more than a certain distance from your house, you could be locked up and put in jail. And, and, and I could go on and on. It's been really severe, really draconian measures of um, what's been going on in these two places and other places as well. But what's interesting when you compare the lockdowns and how drastic the laws regarding COVID have been in the last year and a half to the United States, the startling difference is that Canada and Australia, unlike the United States, do not have a Bill of Rights. And the Bill of Rights, that's part of our Constitution, all of that, says the individual and the family has certain inherent rights that cannot be taken away from now, obviously, we're aware that in our history of a country, there's been problems that hasn't always been equally applied to everybody. But the fact is that it's there written into the Constitution. The covenant, whether you're aware of it or not, is the absolute constitution of the kingdom of God in your life. And if you don't understand the covenant, you're really not going to understand the faithfulness of God. Because if you're basing the promises God gives us, particularly in both the Old and New Testament, upon our cultural, social norms, 
where people are just uh, standing by your side one day, the next day they're, they're 100 miles away, they want nothing to do with you. If, we're, if our perspective of God and how he works in his life is based upon how we're seeing people around us in society, I mean, isn't it interesting? I try to spend as little as time as possible on the Internet, especially social media. But isn't it interesting in a lot of the subgroups and social justice and things like that, if you deviate one bit from the current statement of faith or belief or whatever words that, that trigger people, you're out. Yeah. And that is completely the opposite of God. Yes, he wants us to grow up, and he wants us to become Christ-like, and he has standards for us, not because he's some god of law and legalism, but he wants us to emerge in the fullness of health and life. Are you with me? But if you don't understand the covenant of God, you're not going to understand the promises of God. Like we looked at the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, um, uh, fear not, little flock, your father knows your needs even before you ask, even knows the number of hairs that are upon your head. Um, if, you, if we don't understand that that promise of Jesus is irrevocable, then one day we're going to have faith because we're feeling good. The next day we're not going to have faith because we're not feeling good. Whereas the covenant of God is matter of fact. It's an absolute legal statement by God. It has nothing to do with whether you're having a good day or a bad day, whether you're feeling up, whether you're feeling down. The word covenant, it's a very, very ancient, thousands and thousands and thousands of years old. And it was first really initiated uh, by God, and we'll talk about that a little bit with Abraham, but historically, very, uh, thousand, thousand years ago, uh, kings would make covenants together, nations would make covenant together against a common enemy. Like, I don't know, I don't know this part of the world very well, but, uh, you know, let's say that, uh, and I know this is, a, you're not going to like this analogy, but let's just say, Mark is the king of Myrtle Beach. And then there's a king of uh, uh, Charleston. But then every once in a while, the king and his army from Miami Beach, they come up north and they attack. They try to take over and rob and pillage Charleston or Myrtle Beach, you know. And so Mark, the king of Myrtle Beach and the king of Charleston, they would make a covenant and they would say, if that evil empire of Miami Beach, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? If that evil empire of Miami Beach, if they come attack you in Charleston, we will be right there with you. And if they attack us, you're going to be with us. And what they would actually do is they would take animal sacrifices like oxen, sheep, cattle, all that sort of thing, and they would sacrifice them, and they would put the carcasses in the dirt, in a large area, and the two kings making the covenant would walk like in a figure eight in between it, and they would make a statement, may it be done to me what's been done to these animals if I do not fulfill my covenant promise to you in your time of need. And so they would walk in this little area of dirt that was just basically just dirt and blood, dirt and blood. Well, guess what? That's a picture of the road of Calvary. Wow. That dirt road that Jesus first, you know, 
uh, whipped, beaten. You know, when we talk about the crucifixion, historically, historians say a lot of people could not even carry, nobody carried the full cross. They would carry the, the top beam, then it'd be put together at the place of crucifixion. But historians say actually a lot of people couldn't even carry the cross uh, beam very far because from the whipping they would receive prior to the crucifixion, there was such severe loss of blood. Some people actually died of that. Many of the people were in such severe shock, they just couldn't go anywhere. And so Jesus, although, you know, partway up a lot of the, uh, from the whipping and everything, it would have been dried blood, but that's a picture of covenant. Dirt and blood, dirt and blood. And so the promises of God, as it says in the Old Testament, God is not a man that he should lie. His promises for you that he will watch over you, that he will care for you, that he knows your needs even before you ask, that he has kind intentions for you, that the good work that he's begun in your life, he will complete because he will complete even for his own glory. For his name's sake, he brings healing and wholeness to your life, as the shepherd said. These promises are not contingent upon how you feel, how you're doing, or whether you're going through a good season, a rough season, or even if you're not particularly at your best behavior one day, if you understand what I'm saying. It's an absolute covenant. And so we talk about the kingdom of God, the moving of the kingdom of God. And when the kingdom of God moves, it releases a different quality of life. Because in heaven, there is no diabetes, there's no depression, there's no cancer, there's no loneliness. And so when we're seeking first the kingdom of God on earth is in heaven, we're talking about a different quality of life. We're talking about the realm of the always possible invading the realm of the often impossible. Are you still alive? Yes. Okay. But this moving and changing and healing and expression and the redeeming of the kingdom, it is what could be called the administration of the covenant. But the covenant is the constitution of the kingdom. Don't ask me to repeat that. I can only say that about once a message. We've got to understand that God is a God of covenant, that he makes absolute agreements. Are we on the same page so far? Yes. So, I'm going to talk particularly about this covenant as far as one important aspect, both the old covenant under Moses, the law, but the new covenant under the blood of the Lamb of grace and truth. It is a covenant not only of absolute promises, but it is a covenant of hospitality. We say, well, that's weird. Yeah, I understand. It's, it's weird to our thinking, but that's why I'm going to preach on it. So, one of the very first examples we have of the covenant, we see in Genesis 17 and 18, God appearing to Abraham and Sarah. And on those occasions, one of the first occasions, 17, 16, 17, around there, he gave certain promises to Abraham that, you know, Abraham is close to 100, Sarah's in her 90s, and they've had this promise for decades they were going to have children, their descendants were going to be more numerous than the stars could be counted, but as of yet, no children of their own. And Abraham said, how will I know for sure you're going to fulfill this? And God had him take animals and sacrifice 
a picture of covenant and make an altar of worship to God. But another occasion in Matthew and um, sorry in uh, Genesis 18, he's at a place of rest outside their kind of Bedouin uh, campsite, you know, with the tents and all that. And he sees the Lord passing by. You know the story. And he goes running after him, says, "Please do not pass me by." And the Lord was actually manifesting the form of three men. But they came back, and uh, Abraham said, please not pass us by, please come back to the tent with me. And he said, let me minister to you, we'll wash your feet, we'll prepare a meal for you. So the Lord turns back, he knew it was going to happen anyway, and he goes back to the camp, and Abraham yells at Sarah, quick, bake some cakes, you know, meaning some really good bread. And he went and got one of his herdsmen, said, get one of the choice uh, sheep or animals and sacrifice it, and we'll prepare a meal. And so they ministered to the presence of the Lord, but this was not a quick fix McDonald's instant, you know, <laughs> a church service. They went to great detail here and prepared a really good meal, a costly meal for the Lord. And it is in that context that the Lord said to Abraham and Sarah, at this time next year, I'll return to you, and the long-awaited child of promise will have been born. And that was fulfilled. But that promise, that word came, came in the context of hospitality. We're not going to turn to it, but we could look, for example, at Exodus chapter 24, uh, that Moses and Aaron, it says they took 70 of the elders of Israel up the mountain, and it says they actually saw God. And sometimes God paints outside the lines, and it's really hard to fit a lot of this stuff theologically. But God had said to Moses, no one can see my face and live. But it says when the elders went to the top of the mountain, they saw God, but he did not kill them. And it says they actually ate and they drank in the presence of the Lord. Luke, 15, Luke chapter 11, verse 5 Jesus said, he gave a parable to the disciples, he says, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is shut, my children are asleep, I cannot get up and give you anything. But Jesus said, I tell you that he, that uh, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is friend, yet because of his impudence, meaning to keep knocking, he will rise up and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you will not, uh, find, knock, and the door will be opened to you. It was historically a high value within the Hebrew community because of how God had manifested them so many times at meals and different things that it was considered a sacred responsibility to give hospitality to someone who asked of it. We're all familiar with the fact that not just over the last uh, 100 years, but historically, Jewish people have gone through intensive persecution. Anti-Semitism is not new. It's been around for since, almost since the history of humanity. And so thousands of years ago, uh, Jews were very, very good at trading. 
And in those days, uh, the Jewish traders would go on long caravan trips, you know, and sometimes travel by boats to different parts of the known world at that time. Sometimes they'd be gone for months bringing back gems or different materials and things like that. Well, because there was so much anti-Semitism throughout all of the known world at that time, when a Jewish trader, when he and his people, when they came to a village in a remote part they'd never been to, they couldn't just go ask for hospitality in, inn. they'd be refused as Jews. And so they would always ask, where is the Jewish quarter of town? Because Jews were usually forced to live in one part of town. And it was an understood Jewish reality of life that if another Jew, no matter if you had never heard of him, his family knew nothing about him, if he knocked on your door and said, we need hospitality for the night, it was a sacred duty to open up your door and feed them and take care of them. And so that gives a different perspective on what Jesus is saying here. We know he's given a parable about being consistent in prayer, but he's, he's delving into this thing about how important it is to give hospitality. And we just had communion. About communion, Jesus said in Luke 22, verse 19, it says, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Most of you know this, but in John chapter 6, up until that time, everybody's following Jesus. The multitudes had been following John the Baptist. Now they're following Jesus everywhere he goes. He's huge, huge mega crowds, the news crowds, the big tent meetings. It's all happening. Well, maybe not quite like that. But anyway... Jesus began to say some things that nobody could understand. At the height of his popularity, he began to say, you're going to have to eat of my body and drink of my blood. And cannibalism was abhorred in the Jewish community, you know, even though some weird cultures did it. We won't go there. But... Nobody could understand, and so all the crowds stopped following. People began to think all this popularity has gone to his head. Maybe he has a demon. He's flipped out. And even the larger group of his disciples beyond the, uh, the, the 12 began to leave him. And he even went to the 12. It says, are you going to leave me too? No one could understand the statement, you're going to have to eat of my body and drink of my blood. Now, we understand this. He was speaking about the new covenant. But I'd like to suggest to you that Jesus used the most graphic illustration he could to try to convey something that he wants to be so much a part of your life that he's like the food we eat that we take in that does not just give us strength for the day. It does not just satisfy your appetite. But scientists tell us that every seven years, every single cell in your body, whether it's muscle, nerve, or bone, or brain, is recreated, remade. Well, what is it remade out of? It's remade out of what you eat, what you take in. So as we take in the Word of God, as we take in worship, as we take in prayer, as we take in not just the act of communion, which is important, but we commune with God, over a period of time, it's like the cells of who we are, spiritually and emotionally, begin to be remade. There's a good message there. Mark, don't be discouraged by those blank looks on their faces. But Jesus is giving this illustration, again, about food. 
In the early days church in Jerusalem, now obviously we're getting into the New Testament, the New Covenant, but it says that they were doing five or six things regularly. They were meeting for the apostles' teaching daily at the temple. It says that they were ministering to the widows and orphans, the poor. They were doing evangelism. They were doing uh, healings and miracles, signs and wonders happening. They were meeting from house to house. And it says when they met from house to house, they would dine together. They would eat together. Now, I've, uh, you know, we've all been part of home groups, or, or maybe you studiously avoid them. I don't know. But I've been part of a number of home groups in different churches, and, uh, you know, the first church that uh, I merged in leadership in, uh, after my wife and I got married, we had this little apartment. Literally, it was uh, only about 900 uh, square feet, or 750 square feet, just one bedroom, a little uh, common kitchen and dining area and a little living room and we used to have a home group there ranging between 20 to 25 people and people would be sitting on seats on the floor people would be sitting on the seats of the little um, aisle or not aisle that's a church term but um, hallway going to our bedroom and sometimes we'd even have to open up our bedroom people would be sitting on the floor and on the bed in there um, that was a that was a those were funny meetings in those days but anyway I've been in a lot of different home groups. A few years ago, my wife and I hosted a home group at our church, and it's the best house group we've ever had. Number one, it was invitation only. No, I shouldn't have said that. But anyway, uh, we had about six, seven couples that we'd meet to, and because of my traveling schedule, we only met uh, uh, once a month or twice a month. But what we would do, it was very different from most home groups, that uh, we had a number of gourmet cooks in our home group. That's why it was invitation only. And in fact, one of the couples, he was the head culinary professor at a local university. We had some great cooks. And so what we would do is when we'd met, a different couple would prepare food. We met at our house. They'd bring over all the food. And the six or seven of his couples, we would spend 90 minutes, an hour and a half, just eating, drinking together, hanging out. And then clearing up all the dishes, then we get into a time of saying, I'd share a brief word or something, and then we'd pray for one another and say, what's God doing, what's going on? But you see, we have this strange dichotomy in the Western world that goes all the way back to Greek thinking, the difference between that and Hebrew thinking. We have these dichotomies. Oh, this is natural, and this is spiritual. But see, everything, including your appetite, has been created by God. And so when Jesus said, do this in remembrance for me, yes, drawing our attention straight back to Jesus' body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us and as we take in him, we're renewed. But it also speaks of the larger picture that God is all about relationship. And he's into relationships to such a degree that there's, there, there, there's no equivocation about it. It's, it's not like he's ever one day on it in his love for you, and the next day he's a million miles away, even though it seems like that, because you haven't done everything perfectly. The phrase I love about life and healing is God loves us just the way we are, but he loves us too much to let us stay the way we are. I know that doesn't apply to you, the person next to you, maybe. But... The fact is, even though God is committed to us growing up and getting healed and getting renewed and uh, being Christ-like, 
It's all about relationship, first, last, and in between. That's why the Holy Spirit is not just upon you with this power and anointing, but he dwells within you. And so we call it, it can be rightfully called the covenant of hospitality. And think about this. The Holy Spirit dwells within your body if you've given your life to Christ Jesus. You are a host to the very presence of God. And so, I, I, in praying about this message, and this is a message I give from time to time in different places, uh, particularly on Sundays, um, uh, I felt like the Lord wanted me to share this with you. And I want to encourage you to come into a new season in a church. And I haven't, I haven't pestered Mark and Jane with a lot of questions like, what's your church like? What do you do here? What do you do there? What's going on? Because I kind of like to just hear from the Lord and see with my own eyes when I'm with the church. And I'm not saying you don't have good relationships, but I want to challenge you to make a fresh commitment to really getting involved in one another's lives. Begin to exercise the gift of hospitality. My wife and I, in being involved in international ministry for 40 years, all the way from Cape Town, uh, South Africa, to London, to Taipei and Taiwan, to California, to Toronto, we have found this weird common denominator in best friends we've developed all around the world. Our best friends typically love to cook good food. In fact, I'm addicted to good food. I'm addicted so much to good food that I'd rather fast than eat bad food. You know? I'm, I'm a great airplane traveler because I can easily go 12 hours without eating. So I look at that airplane food and say, uh-uh, yeah, don't just pass me by. <laughs> but there is something uh, we've found because I've done so much ministry in Europe over the years that they take a completely different attitude in Europe and parts of Asia about eating a meal than we do in America. For example, if you go to a restaurant or even a coffee shop in Europe, like Germany, France, Italy, or, you know, whether it's a coffee shop or having a full-on meal, the waiter or the waitress will never bother you to get up and leave, even if you've been there two hours. Because See, the European view and the Asian view of having a meal is enjoying life. Whereas in America, we're just wanting to get that appetite you know, taken care of and get on the road, do our thing. And so it's bizarre when you first start spending a lot of time in Europe in the cafes and restaurants because you keep waiting for the waiter or waitress to hurry up and give you your ticket. They don't do that. You have to ask them to bring it. It's a whole different view. And so my wife and I, we started learning this literally 35 years ago as we began to have a lot of friendships with pastors and leaders in Europe. We started, when we'd have people over for dinner at our house, we'd invite them to get there at least an hour before we eat. And actually, I'm quite a good cook. I grew up with a Sicilian grandfather, and I learned how to make a lot of great Italian food and seafood and different things. And so uh, we'll get you know two or three couples over, have them over our house, and about an hour, hour and a half before we're actually going to eat, and I'll get everybody involved. I'm good at delegating. I'll say, you chop this, you do this, you know, and I'll take the, the fun stuff. But it's, it's a process of sharing life together. Yes. And 
there's something about dining together that that is the mother of all appetites, right? Is your need to eat. It's so basic. But when you really get into it, you're, isn't it true that the kitchen is really the heart of most families? You share life together, and you begin to open up. You begin to talk, well, how was your day, and what's going on, and what the Lord's saying to you. And you know, I know you went through this hard time a couple months ago. What's going on? How are you doing? And it's not just in the moments of having a Bible study together, or can we lay hands on you? Can we pray for you? But it's in the give and take of the reality of relationship. Are you still alive? So... If we're going to get more seriously involved in one another's lives, one of the most important things we need to do is to begin to view one another, perceive one another, look upon one another, I've just run out of synonyms, as God does. See, we look at one another and we say, oh, he's tall, she's short, he has this color skin, she has that color skin. I can tell by the way he's dressed in the car he drives, he makes a lot of money. We look at all these outward appearances, whereas God said to Samuel, I look at the heart. Yes. I want to read to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, two verses, verses 16 and 17. Paul said, from now on, therefore, we regard no one, say no one, no one according to the flesh, meaning the outward appearance. Even though we were once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him the, thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone, say anyone, anyone, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old, passed, the old has passed away, the new has come. So we see all these cultural differences. Sometimes, unfortunately, we see ethnic differences and all that sort of thing. We see differences of social strata. We see differences of wealth, income, economics, all that sort of stuff. That's not how God sees us. He sees us as a new creation in Christ Jesus. He sees us as a son or daughter. And what's just as bad as judging one another from outward performances or outward uh, pictures, is judging one another from her performance. Well, yeah, Frank's a good guy, but you know, he has a history of alcohol problems. Well, yeah, uh, she's, she's, I know she's getting involved in the church, but you know she's on her third marriage, you know? And the more we go on with one another, if we don't change our perceptions, we begin to label, and without even intending to do it, from judging one another according to our failures, our idiosyncrasies, our foibles. I know you don't have this problem. I'm saying this right now for the church that's meeting just down the road. We tend to be very judgmental and legalistic in how we view one another. Whereas God the Father essentially sees you as two, it's in two different ways. Number one, he sees you as a son. He sees you as a daughter. He sees you as a prince, or he sees you as a princess of his kingdom. But number two, even though he wants to deal with our current issues, that's always a polite word, isn't it? Even though he wants to deal with our current issues, 
He sees his finished work within you. Meaning he doesn't see me with my current immaturities. He sees me according to the completed work he knows he's going to do in me in Christ Jesus. And even in our own self-image, we really don't need Satan to constantly accuse us of our past mistakes because we're so good at reminding ourselves of our past mistakes. But this is one of the biggest problems we have that I think rob us. And again, we look at all the social movements out there. You take one step out of line and you're kicked out. And that's just the antithesis of how God is. Now, obviously, sometimes there's really severe problems in our behavior that need to be dealt with. That's a reality. But at the same time, even though God is doing that, he's doing that out of his love for us because he sees the end product. He sees the mature son. He sees the mature daughter that's going to be such a brilliant reflection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember... A church I was highly involved in a few years ago, there was a guy who uh, had to go, uh, he had to have a lawyer approach the church leadership and ask for legal permission to attend the church because the man was a convicted pedophile. And he was not allowed to be in a lot of public areas on a regular basis unless he had legal permission. And so the leaders of the church, they initially met with him and they talked with his parole officer. They found out how long he'd done his prison term for and what steps he was taking to change and all that. And so they gave him legal permission to be in the church, but he could only be in the sanctuary or the foyer. He was not allowed to go into any of the hallways, approach any of the classrooms, Sunday school rooms. He was not allowed to use the restroom at all. And all the staff members, it was a rather large church, everybody knew who the man was because the staff members, you know, if you see this man anywhere besides the foyer in the sanctuary, you know, we need to deal with it. And there were probably at least three different times in the, the years I was doing a lot of meetings with that church where I'd give invitations for certain sort of prayer during ministry times where that guy would come up to me and ask for prayer. Every time as I saw him walking up or waiting in line to get prayer, being a father of three children, two daughters and a son, my initial reaction was just to thrash him. But that would have done nothing for him, would it? You see, it's the kindness of God the healing, the love of God that brings people into restoration, into healing and freedom. I was uh, ministering in a church one time, and uh, we prayed for a lot of people. And one of the last uh, set of people that came up to ask for prayer was a a young family. Uh, The father and mother looked like they were in their uh, late 20s, early 20s, and they had uh, late early 30s, late 20s, and uh, they had uh, two kids. And the father walked up first, and behind him is the wife, and behind them is the children. And the wife and the children, they looked like they you know, had just were refugees from some war-torn part of the world. They just looked 
They didn't look physically battered, but emotionally, they just looked hurting. And uh, the father walks up to me with this big smile, and he, he wanted to tell me about the breakthrough he just had. And he said, can I tell you about this amazing thing God just did? I've really had a breakthrough with God. And I said, okay. Most of the time I say no, and people say that, so don't. <laughs> so he comes, I'm messing with you. But he uh, comes up to me and asks this. I said, okay. And so he says, I've had a problem of abusing my wife and children. I said, okay, that would explain the looks in their eyes. And he said, I'm really trying to deal with it. And the other day I got so angry at my wife. I picked up a large book. I threw it at her. And he said, praise God, there must have been an angel there because the book was deflected. It didn't hit her. I remember in that church, like we're standing here, I'm standing near the front, I've been praying for people, and there's a doorway like right over there going into a hallway. Everything within me just wanted to grab the guy, take him in, shut the door, and lay hands on him. <laughs> but that would not have helped him at all, would it? And so in both those instances, that man who had a history of abusing his wife and children physically, um, and also with the pedophile, as they came and asked for prayer, in my heart, in my spirit, I said, Lord, please allow me to see him as you see him. Yes. And of course God sees him, or saw them as perpetrators, but he also saw them as victims. And so God sees us very differently. It's not that he's unaware. It's not that he hides, puts under the carpet all of our problems. He wants to deal with those. But he sees us very, very differently. If you've got your Bible there, uh, turn, if you would, to 2 Kings chapter 5. I'm going to try to bring this to a conclusion here. I heard that sigh of relief from some of you. 2 Kings chapter 5, the story is that the king of Syria was quite often at war with the uh, king of Israel, and the problem is there was a, a prophet in Israel, Elisha, that would get words of knowledge, prophetic warnings, and he warned the king of Israel when the enemy was coming. But uh, it says in 2 Kings chapter 5, that Naaman was the commander of the army of the king of Syria. And he was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. And it says he was a mighty man of valor. Stop right there. So he's... Heavenly music. Oh, no, I thought maybe the angels were about to do something. So... He's this mighty warrior, a man of valor, but also he was a great general, meaning he's a great leader of men. He was a great strategician, and he was a favorite of the king. But then it says he was a leper. And if you know about leprosy in those days, when anybody came down from leprosy, with leprosy, they were cast out of society. They had to live in leper colonies because some forms of leprosy are so highly contagious, such a dreaded disease. But the king didn't do that. And obviously, he lived kind of a, a, a strange life. He had to be separate from men, give them orders and things like that, but not having contact and things. But 
what happened was, it says in verse 2, the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And verse 3, she said to her mistress, Would that my lord, meaning Naaman, were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would heal him of his leprosy. So Naaman went and told the king, and the king, I'm, just, I'm not going to read it all, the king sent him with a caravan loaded with riches, gold and silver, to the king of Israel, saying, Would you please have your man of God, the prophet, pray for him? And so, it, the, the long story, but he ends up with his horses and chariots and his caravan loaded with riches and things in front of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sends the messenger out, you know, or a servant out to say, what does he want? They've told what's happening. And it says in verse 10 that Elisha sent a messenger him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. This is not what Naaman, this great man, this great warrior, this great leader, the king's favorite, is expecting. He's expecting the man of God to come and lay hands on him, speak in tongues for 15 minutes. He's expecting a great prophetic word. He's expecting a magic wand to be waved over him. And instead, Elisha can't even be bothered to come out of the house. He just says, oh, just go dunk yourself in the Jordan seven times. And you read this, and, it's, and Naaman was angry, verse 11. He went away saying, surely I thought he would come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand to the place and cure me. And then he says, are not, and he names two rivers, the Abana and the Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the rivers of Israel. And actually, historically, that's true because a large time, part of the year, the Jordan River was kind of a mucky uh, river that no one wanted to just jump in and take a bath. And then historically, they did have these beautiful rivers in area, like a vacation place, something like that. And he said, why shouldn't I just wash in them if that would do the trick? But his servants came near and said to him, my father is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? You know, meaning if, if he said to you, do something really difficult, and you found it challenging, you would do it. And I know this is such a simple thing but why not do it? And so verse 14, he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Now, I want you to picture this. You're Naaman, a man of prestige, a man of great authority, you know, you come, you're expecting the minister to lay hands on you, prophesy over, bless you. Ah, just go. Dunk yourself in the water. So reluctantly, he goes to the Jordan River. That's not a very attractive river. He goes in once, fully submerged, comes out, dries himself off. Goes in a second time, comes out, drives himself off. Nothing. A third time, nothing. A fourth time, nothing. A fifth time, nothing. A sixth time, nothing. But that seventh time. I'd like to make an analogy to you that when we begin to really get involved in church life, 
a lot of times it's not always a pleasant experience. I realize, Mark, you don't make that statement very much, but it's just reality. It's just like a number of pastors I know love to say, church would be a great place if it were not for the people going there. You see, what is the problem? The problem is you and me. We are less than completely healed people. We are less than completely Christ-like. I know what you're thinking. He's speaking to the person next to me right now. And so we get involved in one another's lives, and we experience things like maybe sharing our heart, sharing our weaknesses, maybe sharing our failures with somebody. Only occasionally, you know, we find out they betray us, and they blab it, you know. Or maybe we make a commitment, someone makes a commitment to us to help us, maybe financially or otherwise, and then our hour of need, they're not there. I've written seven books. The very first book I wrote, and I'm not trying to do a cheesy segue into a cheesy promotion right now, but the first book I wrote, it was called uh, Walking Out of Spiritual Abuse. When it was republished, they wanted something really cool and fancy, so they called it Toxic Churches with this cool skull and crossbones over there. I, I struggled with that. Should we really have a cover like that, a Christian book? But anyway, it, it sold quite well, so, you know. But the first book I wrote was all about the problem with some churches, a small amount of churches, but unfortunately the leaders are so caught up in the vision, they confuse manipulation for encouragement. And people who go to churches like that, I'm guessing probably some of you have been part of a church where you're valued for what you can contribute as opposed to being valued for who you are. And that's not the heart of God. But even aside from leadership in some churches that may be abusive or use people, for some reason, we're expecting one another to be perfect when we're not perfect. It'd be interesting to really sit down with the Father and hear him clearly say exactly what he thinks about our current levels of maturity at this moment. A good friend of mine, a prophetic guy, years ago, he lived kind of in a rural area. And he'd been in ministry about 10 years at that point, and he, you know, there were a couple of acres between houses, you know, and he's sitting in his backyard, and he's complaining to God about all the problems in ministry and problems with his finances, problems with this and that. And he's speaking out loud as he's praying to the Lord. His family's gone, he's just sitting by himself in his backyard out there. And in a few moments, he heard laughter. And he thought, well, that's just weird because all of our neighbors are pretty far apart from us. And so he goes back to praying, and a minute later he hears laughter, deep, heavy laughter. And he thinks, maybe one of my neighbors is spying on me. They're hiding behind a tree. So he looks around, nobody's there. So again, he goes back praying. There's this heavy laughter. And then he said, God, could that be you? And he heard the Lord say to him, son, you cracked me up. I have a, a good friend, he's an older guy, he's in his 80s, his name is Charles Simpson, he's been in apostolic ministry literally for almost 50 years. He grew up with very, a very strong Christian family, his father was a Pentecostal pastor and just his mom and dad were people of just great integrity in the Lord. 
And I've done a number of conferences with Charles, and I've heard him say this repeatedly about his parents. But it wasn't until I'd heard him say about the fifth time that I really understood what he was saying. He would say, and he still does say, my father and mother were never, ever very impressed with me, but they loved me. And I began to really realize what he was saying is God the Father loves us unconditionally, but that doesn't mean he's very impressed with us. Do you get what I'm saying here? And so you join a church, you get involved, and maybe relationships, maybe somebody burns you in a relationship, maybe a pastor or a leader lets you down, or you know, something goes on. So you go to the next church and the next church. You know, the body of Christ in America, we have people that sometimes rarely go to church because, you know, well, the church has failed me too many times. Well, we're all failures to a degree. And obviously, some of us need healing more than others. Some of us are a little bit further down that road of sanctification than others. But we're kind of all in the same boat together. But I would like to suggest to you, just as Naaman had to dunk himself in the river seven times, sometimes you've got to immerse yourself, immerse yourself, immerse yourself, and it doesn't feel like anything's happening. But then all of a sudden, you begin to find these relationships I've stayed committed to through life-giving. We sang a song this morning, Dance in the River of God. Well, what is the river of God? It's the flow of the Holy Spirit. Okay, we understand that. But how does the Holy Spirit manifest in our lives? Well, I feel his power. He speaks to me. Yes, that's true. But predominantly how Jesus manifests in your life and my life is through other Christians. Mark, that's a brilliant point you just made. Do not be discouraged by those blank looks on their faces. See, it's the love of God coming to us through one another that is also vitally important. And this is why so many Christians have gotten sidelined in life because maybe they've gotten hurt, maybe they've gotten burned, and they've, they can't, haven't kept dunking themselves in the river over and over again. But it comes to the point where all of a sudden you've got a grace to look past, you know, all the idiosyncrasies, all the failures, and we're able to start seeing one another, even with our current levels of maturity, as God sees us. Let me close with this verse, 1 Peter 4 8. Above all, say above all, oh. above all, keep loving one another fervently because love covers a multitude of sins. It's not pretending that we're perfect, but above all, above everything, above your ministry to the world, above your call to the nations, above your career, above this and above that, above everything, stay fervent in your love for one another because all these foibles and idiosyncrasies that just to use a word I hate now, that trigger us. <laughs> Next time somebody says, you trigger me, say, well, grow up. No, no, no. 
But all this stuff that sets us off, love covers a multitude of sins. And that's how God the Father sees us. Are you still alive? Yes. Yeah. Okay. We're going to just close in a little bit of prayer here. Um, I want to give uh, two prophetic words. The gentleman right there, what is your name, sir? Alex. Alex? Yes, sir. Alex, uh, I, I, I was over, um, a friend brought me a great cup of coffee, so I was sipping over worship, but I felt like the Lord pointed you out to me during worship. Now, this is, um, just take this and pray about this, but I saw your life uh, like a, a large plant with a couple of shoots coming out, out of a, a pot, and the pot represented the soil of God in your life and what he was doing, the nurturing, the watering. And you had like two shoots coming up, uh, or two stems coming up, uh, bearing fruit. But I saw around you, though, there were three other little shoots that were just starting to come up. They were just barely sticking like that far above the soil. And you can take this and pray about this, and, you know, if you think I'm wrong, that's okay. You can just repent. But, no. <laughs> but um, I felt like the Lord said, you're kind of like, uh, well, like me. You're kind of like the quintessential male. We, uh, males hate the word multitasking. We, we like doing just one or two things, getting good at it. But... I felt like the Lord said he is either right now in this season or what you're about to step into, he's going to be bringing you different opportunities to do things you've never done before. And they're going to be areas of responsibility. It could be in job, could be in ministry, could I don't know. But they're going to be definite responsibilities. And part of you is looking or is going to look at these opportunities and kind of your natural tendency is going to be shy away. So, well, I've already got these two. I like to get good at be good at this. I want to grow in this. But the Lord has uh, given you in your DNA and who you are, he's given you the ability to really multitask several areas of stewardship in your life. And again, this could be about ministry and church or otherwise could be about um, your work. I don't know. But there's going to come some new opportunities not to walk away from what you're already doing uh, but to uh, take on multifaceted responsibility. And I want to encourage you in this, that if you step into these things, they're going to be not only fruitful to you, but you're going to find after a while that they're going to be very enjoyable to you. Does that make sense to you? Okay. Uh, uh, the young woman doing the sound. You've been very faithful throughout the whole conference. You've been up there just hiding out, you know. Um, <laughs> But I, I actually got a, a similar word to him, not, not quite the same. But I, this is just a very simple word, but I felt like the Lord wants to encourage you. I'm not talking about doing sound and media, but there is creative abilities within you that are part of who you are. God's created you to be a creative person. And for you to take those creative areas in your life very seriously, because as you pay attention for them, as you sow into them, they're going to really be important in your future life. Does that make sense to you? Don't view those areas of creativity as just, oh, this is kind of fun and like dabbling in it, but take them seriously and see what God develops out of that. Okay. So um, I won't spend any time on this really, but we do have a bunch of my books and CDs. I think there's a few copies. Um, if you have been in the past through uh, an abusive church, 
where you were made to feel like you're only valuable because of what you give, what you contribute, what you serve. You know, long term, the bad news becomes the, the good news becomes the bad news, doesn't it? You know. And uh, like I said, the first book I wrote was on that, about recovering from that and emerging back into health and life with God and one another. Um, one of the other books I, I've read, and of the books uh, uh, I've, one of the other of the books I've written, my personal favorite is called "Becoming the Friend of God." And uh, there's three or four paradigms that God wants us to understand our relationship with Him. First of all, that we are sons and daughters, not merely servants or slaves, and that is key. It is vital we understand that. Um, another paradigm that a lot of Christians understand is we are the bride of Christ, that the Father created us for Jesus Christ, and he came to win a bride for himself. Uh, but another paradigm that I believe is also vitally important we understand is the friendship of God. Jesus said a greater friend has no one than one who lays down his life. And at one point, he said to the disciples, he said, I don't call you merely servant or slave, but I call you friend. So a number of years ago, I, I wrote this book, and it's based upon four situations in the life of Abraham and how those four situations will be replicated in various ways in our life. Abraham is unique. He's the only person in both the Old and New Testament to be called the friend of God. You know, they talk to some people and say, well, what's, what's your dreams? What's your aspiration? Well, I want to be an apostle to the nations. I want to be a prophet. I want... But, you know, when we get to heaven, there's not going to be apostles and prophets and this or that. But wouldn't it be cool if when you're standing at the judge and the saints, you hear Jesus point at you and say, the Father, this one has been our friend. You know, that would be something. So that's, that's what this book is about. And... Uh, one, two CD set uh, that I, I, I said last night, if I could, everywhere I go, I'd give this away for free because it's so vital that we learn to the power of blessings about using our tongues for speaking words of life, not words of mere words of criticism. Proverbs 18.21 says, death and life are found in the power of the tongue. Those who love it wait its fruit. And uh, it's just vital that if we're gonna see really healthy relationships and healthy ministry, uh, and success in life that we really learn to use our tongues as God would have us do it. Okay, so um, I want to close with this prayer. Uh, I want to ask, uh, uh, Trisha, would you come up here? Do you, do you mind? Uh, Trisha has been a good friend uh, to my wife and I for years. We've uh, rubbed shoulders and ministered from time to time. Toronto and other places, but we, we don't see each other very often. I think I've seen you now for 10 or 12 years, but um, uh, you told me when, you, when I saw you Friday night about this prophecy I had for you some shortly after your husband passed. And those of you know Tricia, she and her husband had a worldwide ministry and then her husband Jack went home to the Lord. And um, I, I'm, I'm gonna, where we're going with this, I want to pray for people about the adventure God has for their life. So would you just share that word and the impact it made? Sure. Well, I was in a church. Mark was speaking in a church in Claiborne, North Carolina. And um, my daughter and son was living there at that time. So I thought, you know, I'll just go up and see them. And they, tried, they encouraged me to go to the meeting. And um, so, you know, Mark had no idea I was there. 
and the, the building was dark whenever you walked in, and so I just kind of scooted in, you know, and went back over by the soundboard and knew that nobody knew I was there. So Mark's speaking, you know, he's an amazing speaker, and that, by the way, that Friend of God book. Sure, but that Friend of God book is amazing. Uh, I keep it in my little powder room or whatever. But anyway, so I go in that room, and uh, nobody knows I'm in there. It's so dark, you can't see me in there. And so I'm sitting down, you know, and all of a sudden Mark's speaking, and in the middle of his sermon, this is when you know it's God, um, he stops and he goes, I got to do this. And he goes, Trisha Frost, where are you at? Come on up here. Well, I'm sitting there, and I wasn't playing on my phone or anything, so <laughs> I'm wondering, oh, Lord, what did I do? And uh, so I go on up there. That's the first thing you think. You know that. So I go on up there, and um, Mark prays, you know, he prophesies over myself and my daughter and my son-in-law, and he, he put this little phrase in there, and it was, Trisha, I feel like this little cliche, he called it, I feel like the Lord wants you to know, now remember, this is 13 years ago, I feel like the Lord wants you to know that I'm putting the adventure back in your venture. And this was right after Jack died, and I hadn't decided really yet how I was going to personally move out and so whenever he said that I looked it up and adventure means elation thrill fury uh, there's a word in there that means revival revival also means to stir things up and he spoke all that over me and venture means proceed in spite of possible risk or danger so I started praying into that Lord that you know I've got all this waiting for me if I choose to believe the prophet and what he says to me, or I can step into fear. I chose to believe that. Fast forward 13 years, 700,000 road miles later. And John Arnott told me uh, about a year or so ago, he goes, Trisha, stop saying thousands of people. You have ministered and influenced millions of people. Guys, that's not bragging. That's destiny fulfilled. Thank you. So I, I had her share that because I wanted you to know how anointed I am. No. I, I, I had her share that because I wanted to impress upon you that for each one of us, God has an adventure before us. And I've been talking about life together. I can't pray for you and say, Lord, make them be hospitable to one another. That's a choice you have to make. But one thing I can pray for you all, that in your own walk with God, you'd have an increased ability of ears to hear of the adventure God's calling you to. Yes. Because when we all are yes. fellowshipping together, encouraging, strengthening, loving one another, forgiving one another, but as well when each of us as well is stepping into the adventure God has before us, which is more than your eyes have seen, more than your ears have heard, more than you understand. That's when the church is going to have the maximum impact on the world. God literally, as First Second Corinthians nine, First uh, Corinthians two nine says, God has more for you than your eyes have seen, ears have heard, more than you could possibly understand. And. That was it, okay. <laughs> and so, in this age, or this season of lockdown, fear, what's going to happen with the economy, what's going to happen with the Delta variation, how are we going to have to have 85 booster shots in the next 85 years, you know? 
I tell you, God is up to things we have no idea of. And not just in the big picture, for you as an individual. So in closing, uh, can I just pray for you all about that? Let's stand. Just, uh, if you open this, just close your eyes and put a hand over your heart right now. Life proceeds from the heart. Father, I want to pray for every person here, no matter where they're at in their walk with you. Maybe they don't even thoroughly know you right now. Maybe they're just in the process of coming to know you. Maybe they've known you for decades. Maybe they have already emerged in a successful career or calling. But Father, I proclaim your word over their life that for those who love you, Father, you have more for them than their eyes have seen, their ears have heard, more than they can understand. And I ask in this age of lockdowns, this age of fear, this age of insecurity, this age of anxiety, I ask that these men and women and others who make up this church, I ask that we would emerge in just things that are absolutely astounding. And I even pray that by this time next year, a lot of us standing here right now, we'd look back and we'd almost be in shock over what God has done for the last 12 months. And Father, I thank you that even though we sometimes place limitations on ourselves because of our past failures, you see the finished work of being an incredible, brilliant reflection of Jesus. And what's impossible for us is never difficult for you. So I ask, Father, would you give each of us, myself included, increased ears to hear you, eyes to see you, and Lord, would you open doors for us that no one can shut and give us the boldness and the faith when you open up new doors and you lead us to walk through those doors and enter into the adventure you have before us. Lord, would you put the adventure back into the venture of Christianity? I ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now turn to the person next to you and say, you look different. Now say, you look like you want to take me out to a really nice restaurant. <laughs>